Well, a while back, if you recall, uh, when I was preaching uh, through John 8 and 9, which has uh, so many glorious gospel truths and truths about Christ himself, to help us see the importance of all those truths and the things that are presented there in those two chapters, I centered our messages around some of the great hymns of our faith, which clearly and accurately proclaim those truths. So we called that series, What the Hymn Writers Know. And as I often do, uh, recently I was bouncing some thoughts and ideas off of uh, Sylvia about what to do this Christmas season. And she suggested doing the same thing with some of the great Christmas hymns, both old and new. And that really struck a chord with me and got me to thinking and, and going down this direction Begin looking at the fabulous ways that many of these hymns teach truths about the coming of Christ to earth. And of course, at Christmas time, the name we associate with Jesus Christ, which mostly uh, happens around Christmas time, is the name Emmanuel. It's actually two words in Hebrew, Himanuel, with us is God, God with us. Sometimes you see the English transliteration spelled beginning with an I and sometimes with an E. Emmanuel with an I is the English transliteration of the Hebrew and Emmanuel with an E is the English transliteration of the Greek. Very few Bible translations make the distinction and tend to choose one over the other. It doesn't make any difference. We, for this uh, particular series, we've chosen the E because it's in a song that we just sang. And so I'm going to offer just a short series culminating at our Christmas Eve service called Songs of Emmanuel. And we'll let some of the great Christmas hymns of our faith point us back to the scriptures which inspired those hymns in the first place. And today, because we, we want the very recent Christmas hymn by Matt Boswell to be our theme, Sing We the Song of Emmanuel, the song we just sang, We want to use those beautiful lyrics to kind of point us back to that time. Those lyrics remind us of Bethlehem, the angels of God, the shepherds, the wise men. An admonition to us, go spread the news of Emmanuel, joy and peace for the weary heart. Lift up your heads for your king has come. Sing for the light overwhelms the dark. It's a magnificent hymn and it leads us to sing glory unto our Savior Jesus Christ. And of course, our thoughts at Christmas are drawn to that classic joyful text in Matthew 1, which I read a moment ago, in which an angel of the Lord speaks to Joseph concerning his betrothed Mary. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so it is absolutely my delight to preach that text next week. Because first we have to understand the prophecy of the Old Testament, which tells us of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ 700 years before the fact. And that prophecy is found in Isaiah 7 and 8. We'll start in Isaiah chapter 7. Now I had the joy of preaching through Isaiah 7 and 8 a number of years ago. And so it's, it's a lot of fun for me to revisit this with really some fresh studies, some new thoughts and perspectives and to put a larger chunk of scripture together in one message. Isaiah 7 and 8 really gives a gift to us. It gives us the foundation of the idea that God will come to earth as a man. This is where this idea is really developed in its fullness. 
But in Isaiah, we learn some truths about Emmanuel, which are shocking, and they're surprising, and quite honestly, not how our cultural celebration of Christmas represents the birth of Christ at all. And so this text of Isaiah 7 and part of chapter 8 are going to reveal three bombshells about Emmanuel. These are shockers, which the world needs to know, we need to remember. And since they are bombshells, I'm going to describe them to you first, and then we'll name them as we go. So let's build this first bombshell beginning in Isaiah 7, but we need to paint the background scenery just a little bit first. We understand what we're parachuting down into here. The prophet Isaiah wrote at the end of the 8th century B.C., and in Isaiah chapter 6, we have the record of Isaiah answering the call of God to proclaim repentance. He was called to warn the southern Israelite kingdom of Judah, long since now split off from the northern Israelite kingdom of Israel. He was called to warn the southern kingdom of impending judgment. God had told Isaiah that the people would be deaf to his words, blind to the truth, and ignorant in their hearts of spiritual realities, they will not listen. Now in chapter 7, this is immediately demonstrated. We have young King Ahaz of Judah. He's descended from David, and he has quite literally the opportunity of a lifetime to be rescued by the Lord and to demonstrate that he loves and serves Yahweh alone. But at this time, Ahaz is probably 21, 22 years old, and he decides to trust himself instead. And in the midst of God's anger with Ahaz, we get one of the most beloved passages in all of our Bible. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's about 734 B.C. Syria and Israel have tried to force the southern kingdom of Judah into an alliance against Assyria, the the bigger threat, the bigger power. Now, just as a little note here, Bible readers sometimes confuse Syria and Assyria. In Isaiah's time, Syria was often called Aram. Assyria was bigger. They were expanding. They were imperialistic. They desired to control the entire ancient Near East. Directly to the north of the little kingdom of Judah is Israel. Same blood, same family as Judah, but politically separated for the past two centuries. Israel is also sometimes called Ephraim, the name of the most powerful tribe. Israel was much larger. They were more powerful than Judah. And so Syria, Aram, joined with the northern kingdom of Israel to come against Judah. Now, it wasn't just because they were mad at them. They had an intention. If Judah would not join with them against Assyria, they would end the Davidic line of kings and put a puppet king in Ahaz's place. Isaiah 7 verse 6 tells us this. In other words, Syria and Israel were joining up to give Judah an ultimatum. Join us in a three-way alliance against the bigger threat of Assyria or we're coming after you. Now let's walk through the situation here. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that is Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Ahaz was not trusting the Lord, and he certainly wasn't leading his people to do so. Syria and Israel 
came to, Israel, to Jerusalem to attack, but they weren't able to, to complete it. They were held off for the moment. And now Ahaz is in a quandary. He is in a bind. Does he give in and go in with this alliance with Syria and Israel just to avoid being attacked and hope they can withstand the growing empire of Assyria? Well, Ahaz feared men more than he feared God, and he led his people into this fear as well. There is no faith in Yahweh, no appeal to God, no prayer to the Lord, no desire whatsoever to seek the protection and the favor of the God who had formed them into the nation in the first place. And this is a shame, too, because Ahaz was a Davidic king. He was descended from the great King David, and yet he was completely spineless in his lack of faith. Ahaz was now faced with his own Goliath, just like his forefather David. But instead of courage, he was frozen with fear. Now, Ahaz wasn't on friendly terms with the prophet Isaiah. He tended to avoid him. I always know when a church member's in sin because they quit answering my emails, texts, and phone calls. There's an avoidance there. They, they somehow think that we're clairvoyant or something and can see into the sinful heart. And so Ahaz is not friends with Isaiah. Why? Because Isaiah does these pesky things like calling him out on sin and telling him to follow the Lord. And Isaiah doesn't, uh, Ahaz rather doesn't want any part of that. And so the Lord gives this unique Isaiah, opportunity to Isaiah to speak to Ahaz on his behalf in a less vulnerable state, in a, in a less guarded state. Ahaz is out inspecting the water supply of Jerusalem in anticipation of this coming attack from Israel and Syria. And here's where they meet in verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Razan and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Raisin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So Isaiah is sent to meet with Ahaz in this informal situation when Ahaz is checking on the water supply at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And Isaiah is sent with his son, Shir Jeshub, means a remnant shall return. This incorporates the warnings and the promises at the end of chapter 6 that someday Judah is going to go into exile because of their faithlessness, but it won't be in this era and it won't be at the hands of Israel and Syria. And the remnant, the holy seed, at the end of chapter 6, verse 13, will be saved. And so the presence of Shir Jeshub is is to say, hey, a remnant will come back. There is hope for the future. It was meant to encourage Ahaz. And so Isaiah gives this encouraging message from the Lord. Verse 4, his message is, don't be afraid. The plot to replace you with a Syrian king won't succeed. 
In fact, in verse 4, God insults the two nations. The two nations are pictured as smoldering stubs, like a match that's about to be blown out on the verge of their power being lost to Assyria. In verse 8, Damascus, the capital of Syria, of Syria will fall in 65 years. Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, will cease being the people. Now, by the way, Assyria will defeat Israel in 732. They'll carry, carry off many of them in 722. But in about 671, 65 years after this prophecy, Assyria repopulated the northern kingdom of, of Israel with foreigners who intermarried with the Jews that were left and made the people known as the Samaritans. In verse 9, God's message to Ahaz is either stand firm in faith in me or you will not stand any other way. Listen, this is not just a call to Ahaz to have faith in Yahweh to deliver them in this circumstance, but to have faith in him, period, to turn to Yahweh in saving faith. And to bolster Ahaz's faith, God promises a sign. This is unique in scripture this is one of the most open offers ever given by god in all of the bible verse 10 again the lord spoke to ahaz ask a sign of the lord your god let it be deep as sheol or high as heaven but ahaz said i will not ask and i will not put the lord to the test God offers to do anything Ahaz asks him to give confidence in the Lord. Listen, this is the prosperity gospel preacher's dream right here. This is like the one verse maybe they could point to and say, see, no, this is unique. This is a blank check. God says, fill in the amount and I'll sign it. God's asking Ahaz to have real genuine faith in him and God would immediately validate that faith with anything Ahaz asked for. This is rare. This never happens. But Ahaz rejects God's offer and he does so in disgusting, self-righteous, falsely pious fashion. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord God, put the Lord to the test. He's quoting from Deuteronomy, trying to tell God his business, basically. See, Ahaz's mind was already made up. He was going to take the human solution. He was going to look to Assyria and appeal to them. Ahaz hid his hypocrisy behind a wall of false religion. He pretended he didn't want to test God. God is wearied, and his patience is now exhausted by the false religiosity of Ahaz. Verse 13, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? This is Isaiah on God's behalf lamenting, Will the Davidic king not only be a terrible king, to his people, but also be one who fails to love God. And you notice Isaiah calls God my God, implying that God is not Ahaz's God. Ahaz has rejected the Lord. And so rather than Ahaz enjoying whatever sign he might desire, instead of him trusting the Lord and receiving anything he asked for, he's rebuked by the Lord. And God says, I am going to give you a sign. I will still rescue Judah But Ahaz has proven himself unfaithful and he'll be left behind in God's ultimate blessing. And here it is in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. God's rebuke to Ahaz, who refused to ask for a glorious sign, God would give his own sign. A virgin would become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now, the issue of the word virgin here has been long debated. It's a Hebrew word that can mean a young woman who has not been married, but it's also a general word that can simply mean a young woman. Those who rightly connect this, obviously, to the messianic relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the Virgin Mary, they would argue strongly that virgin must mean an unmarried, pure woman, but maybe sometimes fail to remember the immediate context of Isaiah. Good and godly men have disagreed about this, and pitiful little Steve Swartz isn't going to be the one to resolve this finally. But there are some facts that can weigh into our discussion. It can mean simply a young woman. It also can mean a young married woman who hasn't yet had children. And having a child was the ultimate evidence of not being a virgin. This is perfect. Why is that? Because the way this is phrased and the wording used here in Isaiah makes a perfect match to be able to have a near fulfillment in Isaiah's day and a, in a non-miraculous conception of a child and a far fulfillment of this prophecy in the birth of Christ, a miraculous conception of the Son of God. And so the question becomes then, who was this little boy in Isaiah's day? The most popular solution is that this is Isaiah's yet-to-be-born son. Isaiah was perhaps about to be engaged or was engaged and married to a, a second wife, the prophetess of chapter 8, verse 3. And she would give birth to Mahershalal Hashbaz. And he would be the timer. He's the one, the timer of the defeat of Israel and the defeat of Syria. Now, we can't be dogmatic about it, but if you're going to take a near fulfillment option, then Mahershala Hashbaz is definitely the best option. But there's a small issue here, and that is that you have to do a little bit of gymnastics to get this to happen. You have to call the prophetess the second wife of Isaiah in order for her to be a young woman, and the text doesn't seem to indicate that. And so Mahershala Hashbaz would be the best option if you assume there's both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. But there are some very good reasons to see the Lord Jesus Christ alone as the fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy. Several reasons to at least lean pretty hard in that direction. First of all, the food mentioned in verse 15, curds and honey. Yes, this is soft food eaten by small children in that time. But this same food group is mentioned again concerning the day when God's people are overrun, when they're defeated, when they're living under tyranny of a foreign power. Verse 21, everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. What is that? That's the food of poverty. That's the food of tyranny. That's the food when nothing else is available. In other words, when Emmanuel is born, it will be when the nation is under the tyrannous heel of a foreign power. The sign of Emmanuel 
is that because God will allow Judah to be decimated now in a couple of generations, and because God will allow Israel, the northern king, to be decimated in just a few years, never again will Israel recover its former glory. And when Emmanuel is born, the nation, though having returned now from exile, will be a shadow of its former self. And now we'll be under the control of another foreign power. See, Emmanuel will not be born to a victorious nation. He'll be born to a defeated nation in exile in its own land, which is, of course, exactly the situation of the birth of Jesus Christ. Israel, a defeated nation under who? Under Rome. There's a second reason to believe that Emmanuel is fulfilled solely in Christ. The timing. The timing. Verse 16 For Hebrew, because when this child is born and little, the land of these two kings will be deserted. This doesn't technically speak to the defeat of these two powers. It says it's not just that they're defeated, they're gone. The memory of them is gone. It's long deserted when Emmanuel is born. In fact, another prophetic child, not the virgin-born child, is to be born, chapter 8, verse 3, Mahershalal Hashbaz, he most definitely is a local immediate timer of the defeat of Syria and Israel by Assyria. Chapter 8, verse 4. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And so the timing isn't right for Emmanuel. The timing is right for Mahershalal Hashbaz. There's a third reason to believe that Emmanuel is fulfilled solely in Christ. The broader context of this entire section of Isaiah points very clearly to Messiah Jesus alone, born in a time of oppression and darkness in Israel. Look at the end of chapter 8, verse 21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But from that darkness, what happens then? Verse 1 of chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Very clearly, a child who was born later. And in chapter 11, shows us a child who is the deliverer of Israel. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the broader context of this whole section, The coming of Messiah is clearly the emphasis here. Emmanuel is a child who will be born to a desolate, defeated nation. Mahershala Hashbaz is a child who will be born as proof that the coming promise of Emmanuel will also come true. They don't have to be the same person. And so for Ahaz, Emmanuel, God with us, is not a Christmas song. For Ahaz, Emmanuel is a witness against his lack of faith. 
And while there would be an initial help from God, eventually Emmanuel will come when poverty and desolation have now become Israel's lot. So what's the first bombshell about Emmanuel? Very simply, Emmanuel is a condemnation of faithlessness. Emmanuel is a condemnation of faithlessness. Merry Christmas, Grace Bible Church. But that's what the text says. The refusal to listen to God gives us now the promise of Emmanuel. Refusal to demonstrate a genuine faith and trust in God gives us one of our most precious verses that we quote at Christmas time. Emmanuel is given as rebuke, as a reprimand, as a censure, as criticism. Criticism. Well, there's a second bombshell we could look at about Emmanuel. We'll look at it first and then label it. We need to go to a different book of the Bible, though. Turn back to 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings chapter 16, very easy to find. It's after 1 Kings, and it's not hard. 2 Kings chapter 16 tells us what Ahaz was like. What was he like? Was he just a nice guy who was misdirected? Was he just inexperienced? Was he just so young that he didn't know better? What was he like? 2 Kings 16, verses 1 and 2. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. He's a very young man, but he's already full of himself. He had been co-regent with his father, Jotham, probably from the age of about 17, took over when he was 20 or so, very prideful. He has no concept of true faith in Yahweh at all. Syria and Israel mounted their first attack on Judah. They weren't ultimately successful, but when they came back later, there was significant reason for Ahaz and for the people to be terrified because during the first attack, they may not have gotten all the way through the walls of Jerusalem, but Second Chronicles 28 records that in Judah, 120,000 men were killed in battle. That's double the number killed in the Vietnam War of American soldiers. Second Chronicles 28 gives the reason they lost that many. They had forsaken the God of their fathers. Not only that, Israel took 200,000 women and children and carried them north to Samaria. Now, interesting little side note here. A prophet of God named Oded stopped the armies of the north and told them that they had, in fact, been God's tool to punish the unfaithful of Judah, that they shouldn't take their own relatives as slaves. And so amazingly, the northern kingdom of Israel released the 200,000 captives. But apparently Syria and Israel were coming back and this time they intended to go all the way to Jerusalem to lay siege to the city. Now, it's right about here, most likely, that Ahaz has his conversation with Isaiah where Isaiah offers, uh, through, or God offers rather, through Isaiah to give Ahaz anything he wants. And Ahaz refused. Ahaz was about to ask Assyria for help. And so Ahaz had no intention whatsoever of seeking Yahweh in this in this time, Second Chronicles twenty-eight twenty-two says that quote in the time of his distress he became yet more faithless to the Lord. And Ahaz would do something that no king of Judah had ever done, no Davidic king had ever done. Second Kings sixteen verse three, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. 
according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Ahaz offered a human sacrifice of his own son in an attempt to gain the favor of pagan gods. He worshiped every god he could think of, verse 4, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. He's covering all his bases. He's going to sacrifice to every god. He's going to worship every god except the one true god. And instead of seeking God, Ahaz sought human help, which on the surface would work at first, but was part of God's plan. But Ahaz shows himself faithless. Verse 5, Then Razan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Razan, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to cure, and he killed Razan. Instead of thanking Yahweh for his mercy, instead of giving rightful glory to God, Ahaz went to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, at the recently conquered Damascus of Syria. A little side note here tells you how depraved Ahaz was. When he got to Damascus, he got a little distracted. He saw the pagan altar at Damascus, and he had plans for this altar sent south to Jerusalem to the priest Uriah to build this altar for Ahaz. And when Ahaz returned to Jerusalem, he began sacrificing on this altar. He put the Lord's altar aside and used it for reading the entrails of animals in witchcraft. Ahaz completely replaced the worship of Yahweh with pagan worship. The house of the Lord had now become a religious abomination. Do you see why Ahaz gave Isaiah the brush off when he was offered comfort and help from Yahweh he was a depraved, idol-worshiping, witchcraft-using, conniving, self-centered man who would sacrifice even his own son rather than receive help from God. So let's back up for a minute. When God offered to give Ahaz any sign, whether he say anything as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol, symbolically meaning anything you want to ask for, what should have Ahaz said? What should he have asked for? If Ahaz possessed genuine faith in God, what should he have asked for as he faced the siege of Jerusalem by Israel and Syria and the growing threat and might of Assyria? He should have said, Yahweh, oh mighty God, would you defeat Israel and Syria and would you crush Assyria? And Yahweh, you said to ask as high as heaven. And so I would ask that you defeat the enemies of Judah by coming to earth and bringing your mighty armies of heaven to defeat my enemies. In other words, he should have asked for Emmanuel. He should have asked for Messiah. But he didn't. He shunned God. Turn back now to Isaiah 7, and we can revisit verse 13 to understand our second bombshell about Emmanuel, which I'll name in just a moment. 
Isaiah cries out on God's behalf. Verse 13, And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And so the rebuke to Ahaz is in the form of God saying he's going to clean house in the house of David. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Who is the sign ultimately for? You is plural. Refers to the antecedent, meaning the house of David. God is going to replace Ahaz and bring a Davidic king who will rule with righteousness. God had made an offer to Ahaz worthy of a Davidic king, worthy of a Solomonic king, a king like Solomon. For example, 1 Kings 3, verse 5, At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon, the son of David, in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And you remember what Solomon asked for. He asked for wisdom. And because of the humility of this request, God not only made Solomon the wisest man who ever lived, but he gave him incomparable honor and wealth as well. Ahaz is being offered the same thing, a blank check. God is saying, step up and be a man. Be a king like your father David, a man after my own heart. Receive the blessing and the protection of your father Solomon. Do you understand that Ahaz could have asked for God to come in person and he would have? Ahaz would have gone down in history as the greatest king of all time. But Ahaz was a failure as a Davidic king. He was a failure as a man and he was wicked to the core. So God's answer, this is our second bombshell about Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a replacement of godless leadership. Emmanuel is a replacement of godless leadership. In Emmanuel, God says, I will bring a righteous king, the true king of Israel. I will correct the failure of my kings. And he does. Emmanuel is a condemnation of faithlessness. Emmanuel is a replacement of godless leadership. One more bombshell about about Emmanuel. We'll describe it, then we'll label it. Jump ahead to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Mahershalal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Something very, very official is now happening here. First, Isaiah is to take this tablet and write, Belonging to Mahershalal Hashbaz. It means Speed to the spoil and hasten to the prey. Speed to the spoil and hasten to the prey. More on that in a moment. The second thing that tells us this is very official, Isaiah was to get two witnesses to witness that Isaiah was recording the date, the time, the day in which the Lord had given the prophecy that just in a couple of years, Israel and Syria, they would be crushed. And third, that makes this seem official, Isaiah went to his wife, the prophetess, she conceived and had a son who was named by the Lord, Mahershalal Hashbaz, speed to the spoil and hasten to the prey. In other words, Assyria is going to speed to defeat Israel and Syria. 
And before the child is old enough to speak intelligently, Israel and Syria would no longer be an issue. Ahaz and Judah would have been rescued. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. The conversation of Ahaz and Isaiah happened at about 735, 734 in that vicinity. In 734, Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria marched down the Israelite seacoast, went through Philistia all the way to the Egyptian border, and he cut off Egyptian aid to Syria and to Israel. The Egyptians would not be able to come help. In 733, the next year, Israel lost Galilee, Megiddo, and the Transjordan all to Assyria. 2 Kings 15 tells us this. Damascus of Syria fell in 732, and both kings of Syria and Israel were killed. How old was Mahershalal Hashbaz? Two. When all that happened, it happened just as God had said it would. Ahaz was saved. Assyria had come and wiped out his enemies. His plan to ally with Assyria had worked, right? Wrong. Remember what we learned about Ahaz? He was an idol worshiper and the first king of Judah to ever sacrifice his own son. He patently rejected the God of Israel and trusted instead in a plethora of of the pantheon of pagan gods. Ahaz had rejected God's offer of a miraculous sign and basically told Isaiah to go jump in the lake, and yet God saved him. Ahaz rejected God, and he thought he got away with it. He thought that he proved himself self-reliant and wise. Ahaz got the empire of Assyria to fight for him. But what Ahaz didn't get, what he didn't understand When God told him to just trust him and him alone, he didn't get the fact that the real enemy was Assyria. They were not only the tool of God to discipline Israel and Syria, but now they would become the tool of God to discipline Ahaz and Judah. You see, Ahaz made an assumption, as a young man might. He assumed that Assyria would come and rescue him. They'd have a good laugh about it, high-five each other, and Assyria would go home. But Assyria said, we're not going anywhere. They weren't going home. Israel and Syria had formed a buffer between Judah and Assyria. You had to go through two nations to get to Assyria. But now it's gone. Assyria occupied almost all of Israel and all of Syria. And now Assyria landed on Judah's front doorstep and they weren't going anywhere. In other words, the Lord would save Ahaz and his people, but it would be for nothing. Ahaz bought a deceptive salvation and would suffer loss and humiliation as a result. And now the text of Isaiah 8 uses a colorful description of the oppression of Assyria, the description of a flooding river. Chapter 8, verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Raisin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. Now, verse 6, because this people, who is that speaking of? Well, in context, the northern kingdom of Israel is in the middle of being judged as well as the southern kingdom to a lesser degree. This people generally refers to all the Jews of both Israel and Judah. Israel would be completely decimated and Judah would barely survive. But more specifically here, the waters of Shiloh, it refers to a stream that during this this age of Jerusalem is a little stream that brought water to Jerusalem from the Kidron Valley. 
And so this people, the ones who have refused the gentle refreshment of God, picturing himself as the Shaloa stream that, that waters his people, this people is the people of Judah. They relied on themselves instead of turning humbly to God. And God says in verse 6, they rejoiced in Raisin and the son of Remaliah. They're celebrating the demise and the defeat of Israel and Syria. But God continues his wordplay on water. Judah refused the gentle stream of Shiloh, and so a raging river. The king of Assyria and all his forces now will flood the channels and take over all the land. And what happens next is actually described earlier in chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. This is kind of a common literary device to give two variations on the same event. So what's going to happen to Judah? They'll survive for now, but Assyria would be a major thorn for years to come. Israel, the northern kingdom, they'll be swept away by the flood completely. Judah will survive, but just barely. Look with me at chapter 7, verse 18. This is what happens next. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in its steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. This is the vision of the sovereignty of God over all human events, and it's impressive. It basically says God whistles and empires come. That's all he has to do. Who, what is the fly of Egypt? When the Nile flooded, interestingly, they were well known for their swarms of flies. And God says, I can, I can bring them all here. The idea is, is that God can call empires to do his will and they come running. In this case, he calls for the bees of Assyria. Assyria was well known for their beehives in the hill country. And they'll come as the overflowing river at the call of God. Judah is going to be humiliated. They're going to be subjugated. Verse 20, in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. It was considered a terrible humiliation to be completely shaven. It said, I'm completely subjected to another king. No part of the land and symbolically no part of the person would be free of occupation. Judah would now become essentially an occupied nation. People will be killed. People will be taken away. And in fact, the population will go down in the area of Judah so significantly that there will be more milk and honey than can be consumed. Verse 21, in that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. There's plenty of curds and honey. It's the food of poverty, the food of oppression but there will be plenty of it the economy now comes to a near halt as production stops verses 23 through 25 describes fields and vineyards that used to be plush and filled with the goodness of god now just deserted hunting grounds and this judgment definitely has overtones of end times judgment as well a key phrase is used four times. It's often used at the great day of the Lord, the day of God's coming judgment. Verse 18, in that day. Verse 20, in that day. Verse 21, in that day. Verse 23, in that day. You see, this scene in history 
of Assyria coming and pressing down on Judah was far beyond just being about Ahaz and Assyria. It stretches farther into the future, and it involves Emmanuel. In verse 5 of chapter 8, when the Lord began speaking to Isaiah once again to tell Isaiah of the swelling river of the coming nation of Assyria, at some point, Isaiah is no longer the person that God is speaking to. If Isaiah is over here, God is speaking to him, but at some point in this, in this speech, he turns to another, someone else, and he ascribes ownership of the land of Israel to this someone else. In verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Raisin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over its, all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. He's not speaking to Isaiah anymore. He's speaking to Emmanuel. Now, we have to say, wait a minute here. This certainly isn't Mahershal al-Hashbaz, is it? Isaiah's son isn't the owner of the promised land. It can only be Emmanuel as revealed in Matthew 1, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. And now, verses 5 through 8 are a commentary to Emmanuel about what's happening to his land. The broader span of redemptive history begins to come into view here. So God issues a warning. Something so horrific, something so terrible is going to happen to Assyria that far countries should be warned not to mess with the God of Israel. But nothing happened immediately. In fact, Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, the new king of Judah, he inherited the Assyrian problem from his father. Remember when God gave Ahaz a chance to repent of his sin and to trust the Lord for his help? Isaiah came to him, chapter 7, verse 3, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, Hezekiah, his son, inherits this problem. Sennacherib, the new king of Assyria, has surrounded Jerusalem. He's just defeated Judah's fortress city of Lachish, and they're coming. And now he's here to take down Judah once and for all. Sennacherib sent a messenger named Rabshakeh. And in the very place, the same exact location where Judah could have been freed in the days of Ahaz, now they're threatened. Isaiah 36, verse 2 tells us the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Same place. And through this messenger, Sennacherib would mock Hezekiah and try to strike fear into the heart of Jerusalem once again. But unlike his father, Hezekiah does cry out to God. And he prays earnestly for help. And what did God do? Isaiah 37 verse 36 says, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these are all dead bodies. Listen carefully. The angel of the Lord is a technical designation for the physical Old Testament appearing of the second person of the triune God. The angel of the Lord is Emmanuel. 
And in response to his land being overrun by Assyrians and even more in response to the faith of Hezekiah, Hezekiah asked for help and guess who came? Emmanuel, God with us and he struck. And therefore God issues this warning in verse nine, be broken you peoples and be shattered. Give ear all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. This serves as a warning to all the nations, and it serves as a foreshadowing of another time, another time when Emmanuel will come to shatter the nations that would dare come against his beloved Israel. If you know your Bible at all, verses 9 and 10 sound familiar to you, because this is exactly the same warning of Psalm 2. It's exactly the same one, that the nations rage against the Lord, but God in heaven laughs at them, and he promises that he will set his king where? In Jerusalem. Psalm 2, God the Father tells God the Son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The end of Psalm 2 is essentially the exact same warning as Isaiah 8, 9, and 10. He says, now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, hang on. Listen carefully. We've got to put the pieces together here. Assyria was allowed to prosper so that Emmanuel could crush them to the tune of 185,000 men. Assyria was also allowed to prosper so that a model, a demonstration, a sample of global judgment on the earth that is coming could be shown and understood. And so now we have a small example of what will be done when Christ returns. Why? Because he's done it before. He's done it before. And this brings us close to our third bombshell about Emmanuel. God's warning to the nations who will reject him ends in verse 10, for God is with us. The Hebrew is Himanu El. In other words, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand for Emmanuel. Do you know what that word is in this context? This is our third bombshell. Emmanuel is the battle cry of God himself. It is the battle cry of God himself. When Yahweh declares his coming victory over all the rebellious of the earth, he cries out, Emmanuel. A little bit different than the baby born in the manger, isn't it? Emmanuel is a condemnation of the faith, of faithlessness. He's a replacement of godless leadership. And Emmanuel is the battle cry of God himself. And so the question in this season is, Emmanuel has come. What will you do with him before he comes again? The glorious inviting message of the song, Sing We the Song of Emmanuel, it's, it's a beautiful invitation to worship Christ. 
an invitation for all who would come on bended knee, adore him. And yes, joy and peace for the weary heart, for the one who receives Christ as Lord and King and Savior, for the believer in Christ, Emmanuel, is, is the sweet name of our Savior. But for the one who would reject him, Emmanuel is the war cry you will hear right before God defeats you and judges you based on your rejection of who? Of Emmanuel. Mankind must not be fooled by the temporary image of the baby boy because Emmanuel grows up. Now Emmanuel has come. But listen, the bombshells don't have to be bombshells. He hasn't yet condemned all the faithless. He hasn't yet replaced all the godless. He hasn't yet gone to battle against a rebellious world. First, he lived a perfect life in humility as a carpenter's son in obedience to his glorious heavenly father he went to the cross to satisfy God's wrath against sinners who would repent and come by faith to Emmanuel so that you who are condemned become accepted you who are godless become godly and you who are at war with God now have peace with God so could I say this Emmanuel strikes fear into the heart of the wicked and places joy into the heart of the Christian. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Emmanuel. We thank you for the fact that the very King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who will someday rule every square inch of this earth, the one who's already demonstrated his ability to crush his enemies, came to earth as a humble child so relatable to us. He came as the bridge between an unknowable God and a hopeless humanity. And through Emmanuel, through the cross on which Emmanuel has shed his blood, the sin of humanity is done away with and those who would place their faith and trust and worship in Emmanuel can now be bridged all the way to heaven, all the way to glorious fellowship with you. And so we do sing the song of Emmanuel. We give you thanks and we give you praise. And I would pray for a man or a woman here who, for them currently, Emmanuel is the battle cry of God against them. I pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God might move in their hearts to repent of their sin, to come to faith in Christ so that Emmanuel is now the blessed name of their Savior. And we would pray these things for Christ's sake, in His name, amen.